this month on Security Management Highlights. While I think we can all agree that those ISIS beheading videos or recruitment efforts are a bad thing, privacy advocates say it's impossible for these social media sites to be truly objective when it comes to removing content. While countries attempt to curb terrorism online by censoring, questions about ethics and practicality are raised. Homeland Security Editor Lily Chapa explains. At the end of the 113th Congress, there was a lot of drama. A new year means a new Congress is in session in the United States. But what did the 114th Congress accomplish? Legal Report editor Megan Gates takes a look back at important security legislation in 2016. Plus, if we were to not follow the steps of the process, we can let our own bias take the wheel, and that can derail or shift the entire investigation off course. Intelligence gathering and surveillance are just two pieces of the investigation's puzzle. Joe LaSorsa, CPP, talks to us about the art of investigations and how companies can stay ahead of the attacker's plans and prevent workplace violence. And Happy New Year to all of our listeners. I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert-Stoll, and that's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. Countries around the world are restricting access to the internet, citing terrorism and other extremist activity. But privacy advocates say deciding which online content to censor is a difficult task and could be invading the rights of citizens. Homeland Security Editor Lily Chapa is here to tell us more. Hi, Lily. Welcome to the first podcast of 2017. Hey, Holly. You write that among the internet censorship taking place around the world, some digital platforms are removing what they call illegal online hate speech from their sites. How are these companies attempting to fight terrorism through that action? Well, it's pretty common knowledge that extremist groups such as ISIS use social media sites to recruit followers really successfully. It's been a pretty big problem. So digital platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Microsoft, have stepped up their game in monitoring and removing this type of content. For example, Twitter has deleted hundreds of thousands of accounts linked to radical extremism, and Facebook removes any content celebrating terrorism. And Google has even started redirecting searches about ISIS to anti-extremism websites. So while at face value, it sounds like they're doing a great service in the efforts of counterterrorism, what do privacy advocates say about this approach to censoring online content? Why do they say it's potentially problematic? Yeah, this sounds all well and good, except for the fact that there's no standing definition of what constitutes illegal online hate speech. While I think we can all agree that those ISIS beheading videos or recruitment efforts are a bad thing, privacy advocates say it's impossible for these social media sites to be truly objective when it comes to removing content. A great example is that iconic photo of the napalm girl after an attack during the Vietnam War, which was taken down from Facebook because it technically goes against a rule banning nudity. After a lot of global backlash, Facebook reinstated the photo and said it would reassess its content sharing policies. An expert with the Electronic Frontier Foundation notes that with these type of broad content removal policies, constitutionally protected speech is often negatively affected as well. And you spoke to Mark Wallace, who is CEO of the Counter Extremism Project, and he helped develop an algorithm that flags this potentially extremist content online. How does that technology work and how is it helping fight terrorism? Yeah, the algorithm is really interesting. The technology was first developed to find child pornography images, but the Counter-Extremism Project has adopted the algorithm to report violent extremism images. It uses a process called hashing, which identifies the unique digital signature of an image and compares it to a database. 
If there's a match, the algorithm will automatically report the content to the host platform, which will ostensibly remove it. Researchers are constantly adding new content to the database, but Wallace points out that some of the most powerful and effective recruiting content seems to emerge over and over again. Even the video messages of Anwar al-Awlaki, an al-Qaeda recruiter who was killed in 2011, continue to be key radicalization tools for potential jihadists. Wallace says that he hopes the algorithm will render many of these messages completely ineffective. That's why it's so important that this type of content is constantly reviewed and removed. It's great to hear that they're trying to take down extremist content, but like privacy advocates say, sometimes this can be used as an excuse to censor citizens and take away their rights. So we see that happening in North Africa, the Middle East, and Russia. They're dealing with an increase in state-mandated internet shutdowns. So what would be a scenario where nation states are justified to shut down the entire internet for the whole country versus using terrorism as an excuse to block their access? Yeah, this is a really interesting juxtaposition because we've got these tech giants taking down certain content in the name of anti-extremism, but then we've also got these oppressive countries censoring their citizens' access to the internet during times of crisis. One computing expert told me he believes that most countries will articulate plans for taking over internet access in the coming years because during an emergency, officials may need the network void of traffic to help first responders communicate and potentially reduce the impact of a cyber attack. However, in some countries with high political tensions, effectively shutting off the internet can be used to quell uprisings or block anti-government news. And frankly, criminals know how to hide their communications or get around firewalls, so this type of censorship tends to mostly affect law-abiding citizens. Well, Lily, thank you for talking to us about this today. Thanks for stopping by. No problem. From terrorism to aviation, U.S. lawmakers considered various security-related bills during the last Congress. Legal Report editor Megan Gates is here to give us a wrap-up of the 114th U.S. Congress. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the podcast, and Happy New Year. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. Tell us, first of all, about Congress reauthorizing the Terrorism Risk Insurance Program. What is that legislation, and what does it do? Yeah, Holly, good question, because at the end of the 113th Congress, there was... A lot of drama because Congress failed to reauthorize the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act of 2002. So it was not in effect. So it became reauthorizing that became the first agenda item for the 114th Congress. It was actually the first thing that they passed and then that Obama signed into law. And so basically the act reauthorizes the Terrorism Risk Insurance Program through 2020. It allows the federal government to repay business costs following a catastrophic attack that costs more than $200 million in damages. And that 200 million number is an increase from the original 100 million mark. And another change in the reauthorization is that it requires the Secretary of the Treasury to create a, quote, reasonable timeline to determine whether to certify an event as an act of terrorism. The Secretary of Treasury does this in consultation with the Attorney General and the Secretary of Homeland Security. And factors that they take into consideration are that it should be an act of terrorism, it has to be a violent act or an act that is dangerous to human life, property, or infrastructure, that it resulted in damage within in the United States, and then it was committed by individuals to influence U.S. policy or government actions. Yes, thank you for explaining that. And we also saw lawmakers pass the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act in 2016. Now, you also cover our cybersecurity column and have a lot of knowledge about this legislation. So what does this act do? 
Yeah, so this was another one of those sort of dramatic acts that was going through Congress. It was proposed. It stalled for a long time. Congress really wanted to to do something on cybersecurity because they hadn't passed anything on cybersecurity in a very, very long time. So they ended up being able to pass the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act, called CISA for short, in an omnibus spending bill in December 2015 to keep the federal government open. Basically, it got passed because people didn't want a government shutdown. What CISA does is it allows private entities to share and receive cyber threat indicators and defensive measures with each other and with the U.S. federal government. And threat indicators are information that is, quote, necessary to describe or identify malicious reconnaissance. And before threat indicators can be shared, companies have to remove personal identifying information that's not related to the cybersecurity threat. Additionally, it also allows, you know, private companies are sharing information with the federal government. It allows the federal government and its agencies to share information about cyber threats with private companies, and it also gives companies liabilities protections for participating in the program. The Department of Homeland Security officially launched its cyber information sharing program in 2016, and it had at least 50 agencies, private companies, and organizations that were participating by September, and one company was receiving and sharing info with DHS through its automatic information sharing network. This was according to a speech that Andy Osmond, he's the DHS Assistant Secretary for Cybersecurity and Communications, gave at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Cybersecurity Summit earlier this year. And CISA was also notable because it was really the only action that Congress took on cybersecurity during the 114th Congress. So it will be interesting to see, you know, if more attention is paid to cybersecurity in the 115th Congress, especially as, you know, we're seeing a rise and an increase in data breaches, you know, and an Internet of Things botnet attacks. So it'll be really interesting to see what Congress sort of does with this space. Now, we've heard a lot in the news probably the past few years about drones. I read that Amazon recently did its first drone delivery to a customer in the UK. But as far as the United States Congress, have they passed anything recently related to drones and aviation? Yeah, sadly, there was no drone legislation that was passed in the 114th Congress. So maybe 2017 is the year. There was one bill floating around called the Homeland Security Drone Assessment and Analysis Act, sponsored by Representative Bonnie Coleman of New Jersey. And this would have required the Department of Homeland Security to assess security risks associated with commercial drones and develop policies, guidance, and protocols to prevent or mitigate the risks if drones are used in an attack. The legislation, it made it through the House, it was passed, but then it later stalled in the Senate, sort of got sidetracked with the presidential election. So are there any other significant legislative updates you can provide us as we move into the new year? And how about in the aviation space beyond just drones? Anything, any movement there? Yeah, so Congress did act on some measures for airport security. Most importantly, it passed the Gerardo Hernandez Airport Security Act. This was named for the first TSA officer to be killed in the line of duty. He was working at Los Angeles International Airport when a man walked up to the terminal that he was working at and pulled out an assault rifle from his bag and shot him at point-blank range. And so the act requires the Assistant Secretary of Homeland Security to verify that all U.S. airports where TSA performs services have working plans in place to respond to security incidents inside their perimeters. And additionally, Congress also passed the Federal Aviation Administration Extension Act, and this created new security measures like increasing the number of Viper teams at U.S. airports from 30 to 60. So these are the teams that will stop and search suspicious-looking passengers in public places before they've gone through the TSA security 
checkpoint. And the Extension Act, it also requires airlines to create secondary barriers to keep unauthorized individuals from gaining access when a pilot opens the cockpit door. And one of the other major requirements under the Extension Act is that it requires the FAA to consider whether to implement additional screening for mental health conditions for pilots. And this was in response to the tragic incident where the German Wings co-pilot, Andreas Lubitz, he committed suicide by deliberately crashing that flight in the French Alps that killed everyone on board. So are there any other significant legislative updates you can provide us as we move into the new year? Yeah, and there were some significant legislative updates that occurred between when I wrote my column, you know, and when you're reading it now and us doing our podcast. But before the end of the 114th Congress, they passed legislation to ensure that the federal government will continue to fund the National Human Trafficking Hotline. And Congress also passed the First Responder Anthrax Preparedness Act. And this requires the Department of Homeland Security to conduct a pilot program to provide anthrax vaccines that are nearing the end of their labeled dates of use to first responders who are at high risk of exposure to anthrax and who also want to participate in the program. Any readers that are interested in keeping up to date on, you know, security legislation in the coming year, what should they pay attention to? Yeah, good question. So right now, we're not entirely sure, you know, what policies President-elect Trump is going to be really pushing when it comes to security. But we can look at his speeches and proposals and also the Republican Party platform. And so one area that I'm going to be keeping a close eye on is encryption and what, if anything, if there are any bills floating around, you know, to change how encryption has worked and sort of limit its use, especially following the UK investigatory powers bill that was recently passed, which basically limits the use of end-to-end encryption in the UK. Another big area is border security and also possible limits to, to immigration from countries that pose a terrorism threat to the United States, because that is something that President-elect Trump and the Republican Party has talked about a lot recently. So we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that area. And one final area that I'm interested in and will you know, also be watching is that President-elect Trump has proposed issuing an executive order to reverse President Obama's provisions that he placed on providing military equipment to police forces in the United States. He's talked about reversing that so that they can use a Department of Defense program to take equipment that's no longer being used by the military and give it out to these different law enforcement agencies who apply and go through a process to receive it. Yes, we're all going to be paying very close attention, especially in the beginning of his new administration and how it affects security. Megan, thank you so much for stopping by. Thanks for having me, Holly. Investigations can be paramount in preventing workplace violence, and there are steps companies can take to ensure they're making the most out of the process. Joe LaSorsa, CPP, is a senior partner at LaSorsa & Associates, an international protection investigations and consulting firm. He wrote our January cover story and is here to tell us more about protective intelligence strategies. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. What is the intelligence cycle, and how can security practitioners utilize this method to conduct an effective investigation? The intelligence cycle is a six-step process uh, of refining data. And what that basically means is data and intelligence, which intelligence is what supports decision-making. Data is is just that, it's pieces of information. So the process is that uh, six-step process to refine data into intelligence. That way it supports those who need to make policies or make decisions, et cetera. So this is extremely effective for security practitioners and investigative professionals as the consistency is afforded by following the cycle. And also it maintains a direction for those that are using the process. For example, if, if we were to not follow 
follow the steps of the process, we can let our own bias take the wheel, and that can derail or shift the entire investigation off course as we're then looking for what we perceive to be the case versus if we use the cycle, practitioners stay on task, they can maintain a more appropriate direction, and they follow the planning process from start to finish within the cycle. So it affords consistency and also accuracy. Would you mind briefly describing the six steps in the intelligence cycle for us? Sure, yes. Yeah. So the six-step intelligence cycle, the most common model is the FBI model, which has, again, six steps, the first being setting requirements which this typically comes from the type of investigation. What are those decisions that need to be made? The information needs. That must be known to make the appropriate decisions. So what information do we have to have in order to make X decision? And those requirements begin the entire process. After that, the second step is planning, where the investigator or security practitioner, based on the case, would chart the intended path of that investigation based on those requirements, meaning everything from where to get the information to who needs to know in the end to support the decision-making process. So you plan the entire process from those requirements down to the last step, which we'll get to in in a moment. The third step of the process is the collection, which is the simplest part of the process, which is just simply gathering the raw data from those requirements based on things like physical surveillance, uh, human sources, database searches, open source intelligence sources, and other things where we can get that information and then begin to refine it in the next step, which the fourth step is the processing and exploitation step. So the process and exploitation simply means that you're converting that vast amount of information that you collected in that previous step, which that's the sole focus is just to collect as much amount of information. Now we're looking at that and we're trying to discern that information into usable bits or what we simply called dot, and that'll make sense when we get to the next step. So this step is actually what we call it as a sifting process. So you gather all the information, and then in the processing and exploitation phase, you sift it for relevance and what is going to be used to make that decision. So you're charting the dot in this step. The next step uh, is then the analysis phase, which you have all of those dots now, and you simply connect the dots. So that's the way that we look at it, is we gather the information, And the third step, the fourth step is you sift it for relevance. And then the fifth step is you connect the dots. And that's a simple way of looking at it that is uh, best for most uh, security practitioners who do not have a solid investigative background and investigators to keep it simple. That's the best way that we find to look at it. So again, the connecting the dots is integrating those dots from the previous step into a big picture. And that produces the actionable intelligence in the analysis phase. And lastly is dissemination. Take that actionable intelligence and you bring it to those who need to make those decisions. And basically, whoever set the intelligence requirements in the first step, you take that refined intelligence to them. So obviously, the quality of information that is gathered during an investigation is extremely important. How do investigators ensure they're collecting information from the appropriate sources? Yes, and that's why we actually try to rely on as much physical surveillance as possible whenever the case may allow. We try to rely on physical surveillance as you're seeing it firsthand. Once you identify the subject of an investigation, if if there is an actual subject that can be identified, physical surveillance and those means provide you know, real-time information, and also you're seeing it firsthand as well, so you know what's happening. Without that, then you're relying on things such as you know, database sources, which you're then relying on somebody who put that information into the database who may have made an error, which you just have to understand that those errors may exist. So you need to 
correlate what information we're getting from databases amongst everything else, such as open source intelligence from blog searches, Google searches, etc. And a huge one today is social media searches, which is coming to be known as SOSINT, Social Media Open Source Intelligence. And that is particularly effective because once you verify that the appropriate Facebook page or Twitter handle, etc., is being investigated, once you make that step in confirming that, you're then getting information straight from the correct source. So physical surveillance is a great option as well as social media intelligence. What is most unreliable is just open source intelligence off of Google searches and other blog type searches where you have to then verify it versus when you're getting it straight from the source directly. So the best possible way to conduct an investigation is to confirm the source firsthand, which is not an easy task by any means, but that is always the, the first step of the process. You write that even with all the modern-day technical advances that we have, physical surveillance remains a critical piece of the investigation's puzzle. And you write about the attackers on 9-11, how when they were taking flying lessons prior to the attack, they were actually disinterested in how to land the plane, and they were only wanting to fly Boeing jets. How could that information have been used, you know, through physical surveillance to possibly catch on to their plans? And also you cite the kidnapping of a former ExxonMobil president, and you talk about how physical surveillance could have made a difference there. Can you talk about those examples for us? Sure. So if we look at, let's use the uh, 9-11 terrorist example first. If we look at that, and if we get information from third-party sources that could say, what we can use as an example was those who carried out the attack, their process and learning how to fly the planes, etc. If you get reports of somebody else reporting those instances, obviously it's a game of telephone. You're, you're, there's something lost in translation. Uh, you're getting information from somebody else who may have seen it, etc., if there was then to the point where they could have put surveillance on those individuals, now they're seeing firsthand what their activities are, what they're doing, who they're meeting with, how they're behaving, etc. And again, that's just straight from the source, firsthand, you see it with your own eyes, and that can produce a much more accurate and much more actionable effect than seeing something through you know, a, a report or a database search, etc. The Exxon executive, Sidney Russo, uh, in 1992, the president of Exxon at that time, uh, was kidnapped by uh, Irene Seal and her husband, Arthur Seal, at the end of his driveway. Uh, and that, again, was after a lengthy physical surveillance effort by those individuals to identify patterns uh, and exploitable points of, of where they could conduct their kidnapping. So they decided to do it at the end of his driveway. In the process, they ended up, which you know, there's conflicting reports on how it happened, but he was shot in in the arm during the kidnapping and died a few days later due to his wounds as they did not anticipate the extent of the, the wound there. Obviously, they uh, they did not mean to do that. They did not mean to actually murder Mr. Russo, but it was a, a botched kidnapping, to say the least. In that specific case, what uh, we would call surveillance detection. Uh, in this case, there was physical surveillance on the principal, in this case, by the kidnappers. And that is just basically turning the table around or turning the map around, however you like to call it. And you're basically looking for somebody else conducting that physical surveillance on your principal. So it's the same, but a different, you know, 180 approach to the same type of task. So what we look at there is, you know, we consider the, the standoff footprint of where somebody would have to be in order to conduct surveillance on our principal. And we conduct that counter surveillance to that end. And in that case, it would have been very easy to have seen a van over the course of a, a month, I believe, 
which was uh, in close proximity to the residence for that amount of time, you know, that should have been easily identified if there was a, a dedicated you know, surveillance detection type of effort in place there. Uh, again, it's easy to money morning quarterback all these, these kinds of things, but that's why we do these processes now based off case studies. Thank you so much for joining us, Joseph. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. That does it for this month's podcast. Be sure to check back for bonus material throughout the month. And don't forget to subscribe to Security Management Highlights on iTunes or SoundCloud so you don't miss an episode. Once again, I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert-Stoll. See you next time. Bye-bye.